we're starting a, a, a brief series, it's going to be two weeks on worship, leading up to, in two weeks, we have our worship Sunday. You know we do those about three times a year, where we just turn the band loose, and that's the deal. And we, and we hopefully, uh, you know, get somewhere with God, and things happen exactly like what Greg was talking about. Now, um, so... To do that, I, I want to teach into a short series on worship for these next two weeks because I want to prepare your hearts for this because I feel like God wants to do something. I'm going to talk more about this next week, but what I'm sensing is that we are in a good place in worship and God wants to take us to the next good place in worship. Amen? And so I want to tell us how to do that. And this morning, it might be a little preaching in the choir. One of the things I love about Church on the Rock is that I, I, every Sunday I expect that as we go into worship, we're going to have the presence of God. And I don't take that for granted. Not every church has that. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter how good a band you put up, if you don't have people with uh, worshiper hearts, you won't get there. And so I really appreciate you guys. I appreciate that you create an environment where the presence of God can come. And so in that sense, I know you get it, uh, but I want to explain in the Bible why that happens so you understand, because I want to go beyond that next week. Make sense? All right, so if you look at your notes, which I gave you, uh, or they're in your bulletins, um, we're going to talk this morning about pursuing presence, obviously the presence of God, going after the presence of God. Now right there, that title might be offensive to some people. You don't, you don't do that. You don't pursue the presence of God. You just obey God. Or you just, uh, you know, do what God tells you. And you don't. And I'm going to tell you right up front, it's super biblical to pursue the presence of God. So if you don't believe that, um, hopefully that'll change by the end of this. Or, you know, I probably won't see you again. But uh, it's all good. We're going to pursue the presence of God. Now, it all started with Moses. I want to look at Moses because this is where we get a real introduction to the importance of the presence of God. Uh, so with Moses, it all started with his presence. You guys know Moses is wandering around. He's, he's left uh, Egypt because he killed a guy and uh, he had to run. So he went out in the middle of nowhere and started being a shepherd. And he's just minding his own business walking by when he sees a bush on fire and has to go talk to it. And the bush talks back. It's actually the angel of the Lord. We know who that is. And uh, so it begins with the presence of God in a bush for Moses, in a fiery bush. Now, of course, you know the rest of the story. Moses goes on. He goes back to Egypt. He does everything God tells him. They have some plagues and uh, cool stuff like that. And then he leads after 10 plagues, and, and Pharaoh finally has his, you know, finally has had enough. Uh, he leaves with the nation of Israel, and they are led by a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night, right? So they're literally led by the presence of God. Now, again, it's easy to just read that or, you know, see the movie and Charlton Heston and all that and take it for granted, but I want you to think about that. What would it be like to you know, go to bed tonight and you say, you know, I say, good night, Rachel, I'm going to bed. And I walk out my front door and a couple hundred yards away, I go, good night, God, in a big, huge, swirling flame of fire. See you tomorrow. Every day they get up and that's what Israel sees. 
right? The presence of God. They're being led literally through the wilderness by the presence of God. Now, I put in your notes, I don't have time to do this today, but uh, you should look up, do a word search sometime just on fire and whirlwind. You'd be surprised at how many times God shows up in fire or with fire or in a whirlwind. So just be aware because when he comes back again, there's going to be some of that fire and whirlwind stuff as well. All right. So anyway, I'll let you do that on your own. My point is, it was all about the presence of God now leading a nation. The presence of God manifests in the earth leading a nation. And of course, we go on, we're out in the wilderness, we jump to Exodus 33. And what's happening is Moses is regularly uh, meeting with God. And uh, it's, it's uh, getting uh, awkward because he keeps meeting with God. And then his face is glowing and people treat him different because his face is shiny. And so, you know, Moses, sometimes he's putting a veil on. So what Moses does, he, he, he makes a little tent outside a camp. And that's this place where he would go out and meet with God. And then he'd come back with his face all shiny. And everybody, I, I know, I guess it was intimidating. Uh, but they would all come to the edge of their tents. And they'd watch Moses meet with God. And then they'd watch him come back with his veiled face. And that was the way it went. So the tent of meeting was the place of presence. I want you to follow this because I'm building something that's all going to make sense at the end. The tent of meeting was the place of presence. They had the presence of God. And the tent of meeting was the place where Moses knew he could go and meet with God. Right? Now, same chapter, Exodus 33, something happens. And I want to look at Moses' appeal. Here's what happens. Um, while Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments and talking with God, uh, remember Israel makes a golden calf, has a drunken party, and it doesn't go well. And Moses comes down, breaks the tablets, there's death, people are, you know, stuff's happening, right? So, after that, God, uh, so we see in Exodus 33, Moses is out the tent talking to God, and God breaks the bad news to Moses. God says, basically, Moses... Look, I'm sending you into the promised land with this people, but I can't go with you because they're a stiff-necked people, and if I go, I'm probably going to kill all of them. Right? That's what he says. And this is a deal-breaker for Moses. I want to catch this, guys. It is a deal-breaker for Moses to not have the presence of God. What if all of our churches said it's a deal-breaker to not have the presence of God? So, I actually didn't put this in the notes, but I'm going to go ahead and read it because I just think it's so fun. So here's Moses' response. This is how you appeal to God. This is hilarious, I think. And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you're going to send with me. You hear what he's saying? God just says, I'm not going. He's going, no, okay, God. See, you say, bring up this people, but you're not telling me who's going with me, and I'm not going alone. And he goes on, he says, uh, now you've said, I know you by name, and I've found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me your way that I may know you, and then I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. Did you catch that? Look, you say, take them up, but you haven't told me who's going with me. You say, I've found grace and favor, but I'm not in this on my own. And, and 
I just want to remind you, this is your problem. This is not my problem. These are your people, right? And it's an effective appeal because God listens to him and uh, says, okay, I'll go, right? So we should learn from Moses' appeal. I just think it's really funny how tactful Moses is in saying this is a deal breaker, God. And so uh, he gets, once he gets it, he, he's more clear. So let's look at Exodus 33, 14 through 16. And he says, my, God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate. That's what holy means, separate, right? Set apart. Your people and I from all the people who are on the face of the earth. So see, there's three things here I want you to get out of this passage, and these are important things. The first one is this. Moses unashamedly pursued God's presence. He was not afraid to say, God, if you ain't going, I ain't going. It's a deal breaker. It is a deal breaker for me to not have your presence. It should be our heart. We should have the same heart and the same attitude as Moses. God, I don't want to do this without your presence. I don't want to do this without his presence. I really don't because all that's left is me and I'm not that good. Right? The second thing is this. Not only does he say, my presence will go with you. He says, I will give you rest. I want to submit to you that his presence is our resting place. That we need his presence or we will get worn out. His presence is our resting place. I love in Acts 3 where Peter's just, uh, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has come. Peter's preached a sermon, 3,000 people get saved. They go, what do we do? And in verse 19 he says, repent so that times of refreshing may come. Who could use some times of refreshing? Anyone? From the presence of the Lord. Not just from the Lord, from the presence of the Lord. If you'll repent, God will give you his presence and that'll refresh you, right? We, we see in the Psalms, Psalm 31, he refers to the secret place of his presence. Psalm 91, he says it's a place we can go hide. We can hide ourselves in the secret place of his presence. So it's not only important that we have his presence just uh, to go and do whatever he gives us to do. It's what gives us rest. It's our resting place. It's our, it's our refueling place. And so every Sunday morning, I'm excited about coming and uh, experiencing uh, times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. How about you? All right. The third thing is this. I love what he says. He says, if you're not going, don't take us because otherwise... There's nothing to distinguish us from the other nations. The only thing that makes us different is that you're with us, right? I submit to you that that hasn't changed, that it is his presence that separates us as his people, not our doctrine. It's not just that we have better rules than the other religions, right? Our book makes more sense than the other religions. No, the difference is we have the living presence of God. We can actually manifest the kingdom of God on earth. That's what separates us. That's what the other nations noticed about Israel. And that is what the nation should notice about the church. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, uh, he specifically tells them, stay here in Jerusalem. For God's sake, don't try and do anything without me. 
until you've received the promise, right? The promise of his presence, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Once you've received the promise of his presence, the Holy Spirit, he says, then you shall be witnesses. I'm telling you, right there, right at the beginning in Acts, we can't be witnesses without his presence, right? It's not just information. It's not just doctrine. It's that we carry his presence. So let's jump back to uh, the presence in the Old Testament. Let's continue with Moses. Moses had the tent of meeting, but Moses also got instructions, if you recall, to build the tabernacle, right? And it was very specific, and there was certain furniture he was supposed to build. And it's all very interesting. It'd be fun to go on a rabbit trail there, but I'm going to resist it. At any point, uh, he built the tabernacle, and he built the Ark of the Covenant that went in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. What you need to understand is the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. It was like God's throne. So they understood wherever they went for the rest of the time, Israel understood that the Ark of the Covenant uh, carried God's presence, right? And the, the tent was a covering. The tabernacle was a covering for the Ark. The big deal about the tabernacle was not the tabernacle. The big deal about the tabernacle was the Ark and God's presence, right? And so it is the place of presence that God gave them. And what we see is they go into the promised land. Remember that whenever the pillar of smoke or fire would move, uh, Israel would move and they'd move the tabernacle with them wherever it went. Well, when they went into the promised land during the period of judges for 367 years, I believe, um, they were in Shiloh. They sent the tabernacle up in Shiloh, a city a little bit north of Jerusalem, and they set the ark in the tabernacle, and they did the feast, and did all the stuff that they were supposed to do. Well, mostly, there's, you read the judges, they screwed up a lot. But they mostly did what they were supposed to do. And so everything's going on just fine until the last judge, Samuel. Now, in Samuel is the last judge, remember, because they asked Samuel for a king, so we switched over to King Saul after Samuel. Uh, here's something interesting that happens. Up until now, the presence of God, the ark, is in the tabernacle, the place of the presence. Except, um, at this point, Israel's gotten kind of wicked, and the Philistines are coming against Israel and defeating them, and they get this bright idea, and Eli is a really poor high priest. He's allowing a lot of compromise, and his sons are just off the charts compromising. And so, uh, they're going out to war, with the Philistines, and they get this bright idea. Why don't we take the presence of God with us so that we'll win the battle? So we'll take the ark. Well, God wasn't going with them because they were rebelling. And so they take the ark, and the Philistines at first are really scared because they brought God into the camp. And they're like, this is not going to go well. But turns out uh, God had forsaken Israel at that point in that battle because they were rebelling. And so the the Philistines take the ark. You guys remember this. And it's, it's pretty, uh, they, it's, it's kind of like the old joke about the dog. What do you do if you catch the car? So they have the ark now, and they're very excited about this. And they take it home, and they set it up in front of their, their god, Dagon. And they come the next morning. Of course, he's on his face. And so they, they, they stand their god back up. Now, that right there ought to tell you something when you've got to stand your god back up, right? <laughs> But they don't get it. And so the next morning they come in and Dagon's bowed down again, but his, his, his head and his hands are 
broken off. And they're like, this is bad. And now people are starting to get tumors and bad things are happening. So they go, we got to get rid of this ark thing. This was a bad idea. We shouldn't have taken this. And so they, they go, well, let's find out if it's really God. Let's put it on a cart and we'll just put some cows in front of it. and We'll see if it goes. If it goes up to Israel, it's probably God. And of course, it goes right up to Israel. And they're happy to be rid of it uh, because uh, they were being cursed for having it, right? So again, you see the ark as the presence of God and things are happening. Now, uh, what happens after that, eventually the ark will get back to Jerusalem. Uh, Dave will bring it back. What happens first is it goes into a town and they go, awesome, the ark. And they put it in, but they get curious and they, they, they're just going to peek inside like Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know? Seriously. So they look inside and like 50,000 people die. And, and so they, they call the next town. And they go, hey, we got an ark. Um, <laughs> you guys want this at your town? Because we're done with it. Right? So it goes to the next town and they're smart enough not to touch it. And so they get blessed and it stays there for like 20 years. And then King David, the whole reign of King Saul, the ark is over there. Now keep in mind, the tabernacle is still somewhere else. So the ark is there. Uh, then they, uh, David goes to get the ark, but they make the mistake of putting the ark on a cart instead of carrying it with poles. It, it wobbles. Someone touches it to steady it. He's dead. David goes, that's it. This is not going to work. Uh, let's regroup. Put it at Obed-Edom's house. I'm going back to Jerusalem. And so uh, Obed-Edom gets really, really, really blessed. In fact, Obed-Edom gets so blessed that when they move the ark to Jerusalem, he comes with it. He becomes a priest. And he's like, I'm not leaving the presence of God. I'm leaving my house to go with the presence of God. Right? And, and, uh, and so David eventually does it right. The fourth time, he, they put the poles in. They carry it on their shoulders. They bring it back with lots of rejoicing and sacrifices. And uh, this is the part where David is dancing in his ephod. And his wife is not happy about that. And he... Uh, and, and so, guys, this is the one case where, you know, you can tell your wife, I don't have to do what you say if I'm wearing a linen ephod. So <laughs> that works for you. You can get away with it. Anyway, uh, they get back to Jerusalem. So the ark is back in Jerusalem. Now, here's the thing. I want, to, I want to set this up because I find this super interesting. While the ark is in Jerusalem and while the ark has been traveling slowly from Philistia to Jerusalem over years, it has never been put back in the tabernacle. The tabernacle, uh, Saul moved it around a couple times. We don't really know where, everywhere he put it and when. We do know that it ends up in Gibeon and that it was a high place for burnt offerings. So for, for Saul's reign and for David's reign, or most of David's reign, yeah, really all of David's reign, they're separate. So by the time Solomon becomes king, we have the ark representing the presence of God in Jerusalem. We have the tabernacle and the altar on which sacrifices are made in Gibeon, about 10 or 12 miles north of Jerusalem. So they're separated and people are still going and offering sacrifices in Gibeon. In fact, uh, I knew his name, Solomon. Yeah, I forgot for a second. Solomon goes and offers sacrifice in Gibeon. Now, here's what I want you to think about. There's this whole period of these first two kings where the ark and the tabernacle and the altar 
are separated. So we have, before we have the presence and the place of the presence. Now we have the presence or the place, right? We have the place of offering or the presence. Which one would you choose? You sure? It's a good question. Did you come to church this morning because this is where you go to bring your sacrifices every Sunday to God? Because this is the routine? Or did you come here expecting the presence of God? Now, you might have a great answer for that, but I want you to broaden that to the church in the earth. Are we going for uh, the ritual, for the sacrifice, for the altar? Or are we going for the presence? Hopefully, we can have both here. But if they're separate, which one do you go for? You understand what I'm saying? Not everyone chooses the presence. Some people choose the altar. And so that's what was going on in Israel. Uh, they, uh, now Solomon, uh, when he, remember he goes and he meets with God, and God says, what do you want? And he says, give me wisdom because I don't know what I'm doing, and, uh, which is a good prayer. And, and so God does. That was in Gibeon. He went to the high place, to the altar at Gibeon, where the tabernacle and the original altar were. But the very next thing we see Solomon doing is he builds the temple. Remember, David had saved up all the stuff for him to build the temple. He builds the temple, and he puts the ark in the temple, and he restores the place of the manifest presence of God. Once again, the presence of God is in the place of the presence where they sacrifice. So it's all in the same place once again. Here's what I want you to notice. Believe it or not, I am talking about worship this morning. When they dedicated the temple, uh, they brought the ark in and they made many sacrifices. And it was great and everybody was happy, but nothing spectacular happened while they're making sacrifices. The same sacrifices they've been making at the altar of the tabernacle in Gibeon for a long time. You know when something happened? It's when the worshipers began to sing, the Lord is good, his mercy endures forever. We see that it was not when they were offering the sacrifices, it was when they began to worship that a cloud filled the temple. Isn't that interesting? Did God, which place did God choose? And then, 2 Chronicles 6 is all a lengthy prayer from Solomon. It's a really good prayer. And then we see that when he ended his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering that was on the altar, and the glory of God filled the temple. It is almost as if, and I'm stretching here, it's almost as if God was more excited about prayer and worship than about the offering. Just a thought. You with me? All right, so I'm building to something here. Let's keep looking. Let's jump ahead because we know that that temple that Solomon built would eventually be destroyed when Jerusalem went into captivity to Babylon for 70 years, but that Ezra and Nehemiah would come back and would build the temple and the wall, and there would be a uh, re rebuilt temple later, right? So let's jump ahead. When they dedicated the temple in Nehemiah 12, uh, we see something interesting there. We see uh, what, uh, what Nehemiah did was he set up 
what's called antiphonal worship. Now, all that means, antiphonal worship, is you put a choir over there, and you put a choir over there, and they sing back and forth to each other. That's all it means. And so what Nehemiah did is he put a bunch of Levites on one wall and a bunch of Levites on the other wall, and they sang back and forth to each other antiphonally. And what I love in this chapter, in Nehemiah chapter 12, is uh, verse 24, he says, they did this according to the command of David. See, what David did, when David brought the ark back to Jerusalem, remember, the tabernacle and all the, the altar and all the things of the tabernacle are still in Gibeon. David brings the ark back, and all he does is put a tent over it and put singers around it. That's it. Ark, tent, singers. And he had them sing antiphonally, back and forth. Uh, and so Nehemiah, when they rededicate the temple, says, according to the, we're going to do it like the command of David. In fact, Solomon, everyone after David did it that way. Solomon's temple had singers that sang back and forth. That's why uh, when they dedicated it, they were singing um, uh, the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever, which is incidentally the same song uh, that they were singing in Nehemiah's time. It is like the number one uh, all-time chart topper in the Old Testament. Okay. <laughs> the Lord is good. His mercy endures forever. It's a good song. You guys with me? Amen. Now, this is all going to make sense in a minute. Now, let's jump ahead to Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. What's happened is, I don't know if you guys realize this, but the, the Jews at this time, not only are they kind of blowing off the Gentiles, they, aren't even, they didn't even think the Gentiles could be saved. Peter had to have a vision. Uh, I was just telling someone recently that uh, we were talking about the, the men's thing and, uh, that's coming up and how there's going to be pork. And I said, you know, in the first evangelistic outreach to the Gentiles, God specifically involved pork. I think it's an evangelistic tool that's ordained by heaven. Anyway, uh, bacon, whatever, pig. Uh, you remember Peter gets the vision uh, and, he's, and kill, eat, all the stuff that they're not supposed to eat. And, uh, and he goes in, to Cornelius' house and, the Holy, and Peter's just talking because God told him to go talk. And the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles and Peter's response is, you got to catch this, guys. Uh, sometimes we miss stuff. Peter's response is, huh, so they can be saved. I didn't think they could be. I thought this was just for us. That's his response. So the, so the Gentiles can be saved. What do you know? Who'd have thought? I'm like, dude, we're in the Old Testament. But no, he didn't get it. That's how, that's how it was, right? So this is important that you get that because it's in... The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where they're talking about, they're figuring out, oh, I guess the Gentiles can be saved. What should we make them do? Should we make them follow the law? Should we make them be circumcised? And of course, they go, no, uh, let's not, um, because you know, clearly God's going to give them the Holy Spirit just for believing, because that's what happened with Cornelius. So uh, it's in the midst of this that we see them quote a prophetic scripture in Amos. And this is where it gets interesting. In Acts 15, verses 16 and 17. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, 
Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. And of course, they're quoting Amos. Now, God could have said, I pick Moses' tabernacle. I pick the tabernacle in Gibeon. I pick the temple that Solomon built. I pick the rebuilt temple. But he says, I pick the tabernacle of David. Why? It has to be worship. You know why? Because there was absolutely nothing else. There was a tent and ark and worshipers. That was it. And God says, that's the temple I'm rebuilding. Are you getting this? This is interesting. So he chooses this temple because of the worship. Now, David established antiphonal worship at the temple, right? Why? Well, I don't, I've always wondered, that I, I suspect David had experiences he didn't tell us about uh, because of things I read in the Psalms. And I go, how did he know that? How did he, how did he know that? How do you know about that? How do you prophesy that? He prophesied a lot in the Psalms. And so here's one of them we're expecting anymore because Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, he saw God high and lifted up and on his throne, you remember what he saw? He saw two seraphim crying out to one another antiphonally, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. We know John, the apostle John in Revelation 4 saw the throne of God, and again, saw the, the seraphim crying out to each other, holy, 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 antiphonally, back and forth. And I go, did David see something like that? Did David understand throne worship, that God's throne is established with worship antiphonally surrounding it? Did David see that somehow? You know why I suspect it? Because David wrote Psalm 22. Let me read Psalm 22, verse 3. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. That word enthroned in the Hebrew means dwell in the midst of. So David's going, Lord, I know I put singers around the tabernacle. I'm sorry, singers around the ark because I know that throne worship is surrounded or that your throne is surrounded by worship. You are literally enthroned in antiphonal worship. That it's, it's there all the time. That that's where your presence is. Amen. Right? Amen. So he got that. And uh, that's what he did, I think, when he uh, designed the tabernacle of David. And again, guys, catch this. This is the tabernacle that God wants to rebuild. The tabernacle of David, not the other ones. Now, why? You begin to see how big a deal worship is. Now, let me tell you a story before we go on to this last part. Um, I love this story. Uh, I, I wish I could see it or be there at this time, but it's a long time ago. There's a place called the Valley of Angels. It's in Bangor Valley in Ireland. And the reason it's called the Valley of Angels is because about 550 A.D., there was a monastery nearby this valley. And what they did uh, is they uh, had a bunch of monks and they put them on either hillside of this valley. And they would sing the Psalms back and forth to each other 
24-7. You know why they called it the Valley of Angels? Because at night, they would see lights in the valley. Now, there wasn't anything in the valley. They'd just see lights. What do you think that was? I'm telling you guys, God will enthrone himself in the midst of our praise. You getting this? If you want the presence of God, this is the deal. So, here's what I think. I submit to you that we are the rebuilt tabernacle of David. Amen. Let me make my case. First of all, the, in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council quotes this verse when they're talking about the salvation of the Gentiles. It's almost as if they're saying, oh, the Gentiles have been filled with the Holy Spirit and they're worshiping God. This must be what Amos was talking about when he said, I'll rebuild the tabernacle of David. They must be it. They weren't saying this is going to happen. They were saying this must be that. Right? So I don't think it's going to be a physical tabernacle of David where there's just a tent and an ark and guys singing around it. I think it's us. I think we are, every time we enter into worship, establishing the tabernacle of David where God can sit in the midst of it. The other reason I think this is because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Does this sound at all familiar? The temple and the dwelling place. So we get this, but we tend to think of it uh, in an intangible way. And guys, I'm telling you, it's tangible. If we will set ourselves up as a temple, as a place of prayer and worship, uh, we will see the manifestation of the Spirit of God dwelling in us. I love Colossians 1.27. It says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is this mystery that he's making known among the Gentiles? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen. So it sounds like I'm a temple and Christ dwells in me. And I can have the hope that if I do things right, if I do things maybe the way Solomon did, maybe his glory will fill the temple. Do you have the hope of his glory filling your temple? All right. Well, let me tell you how we do that. All this, I put this in bold so you'd be sure to get it. All this leading up just to make this one statement, worship creates the place for his presence. It's that simple. He enthrones himself in praises. If we will build it, he will come. If we will build a temple of praise, if we will build a tabernacle of David in this room, he will come in this room. If we will build a tabernacle of David in our hearts, he will come in our hearts. We have to do it. We have to pursue his presence. We have to desire his presence. And we have to recognize that worship is how we do that. That worship is how we pursue his presence. Worship is our resting place. Worship, uh, having his presence on us, walking out of here with his presence on us, is what sets us apart. Does that make sense to you? Okay. So I know we kind of know that experientially. But I wanted you to know it biblically today and be really confident 
in your ability to, uh, th- it isn't random. It's not, I don't go to church going, uh, well, I hope God will, God's presence will be there today. It might happen, it might not. I go, I know God's presence is going to be there because I know everybody at church is going to pursue his presence. All right? So don't we do this again and again and again? Don't we see this happen? I left you a little homework in here. I'm not going to even tell you what it is. Just on the bottom of your notes, for something interesting after Christ returns, see Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. There's only three verses in the whole chapter, so just read two-thirds of the chapter. But uh, it's uh, something that happens when Christ comes back. It'd just be interesting for you to ponder. Lots of good stuff in that. So, next week... I'm going to talk about how God wants us uh, to have more, how God wants us to go to the next level in worship. But I really wanted to build the foundation this week that uh, uh, it's not random, guys. Worship is creating the temple of, or the tabernacle of David, a place where God can seat himself so that we can interact with him, just like Moses did. Maybe go away with our faces glowing a little bit, go out there, and manifest his presence. And people go, oh, you're different. You're set apart. You carry uh, the fragrance of God, the presence of God on you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.